Today I'm thrilled to welcome Meg Taylor, a citizen of the Blue Pacific. Meg is also the former Secretary General of the Pacific Islands Forum. Prior to that, Meg was the World Bank's first Vice President, Compliance Advisor and Ombudsman. Meg also served as Ambassador to the United States for her home country, Papua New Guinea. Meg, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's lovely to have you as my guest today. My pleasure to join you. Meg, I'm mindful that in matters of climate change, transition to clean energy, the island states in the Pacific have a very, very unique set of challenges but in potentially opportunities. And I thought I'd spend a couple of minutes chatting to you about this. Let's start with my first question. Climate change and decarbonation means different things to different regions of the world. Can you briefly tell us what these issues mean for island states in the Pacific and citizens like yourself? Well, decarbonization would mean that we have a lifestyle that is sustainable and particularly that the security of our ocean resources are safe and healthy. But with the situation as it is now, with the increase in temperatures, what we find is that the oceans are warming, acidification of the oceans uh, is spreading across the Pacific. That affects the health of fish stock. But most of all, what's happening is that the sea level is rising. And as sea level rises, it means that for our low-lying states, our atoll states, it means the security of their future has been undermined. So it's very important for us that the world pays attention to this. This is not an experiment. This is not something that's going to happen in a thousand years. This is very much at the doorstep of many of our island states right now. And what we've been pushing for is that we keep temperatures at 1.5 degrees Celsius. But with the increase of temperatures, as we're seeing now, trajectory towards three, uh, three degrees Celsius, it's going to mean that we in the Pacific will lose our homes. And that's what climate change means for us and why decarbonisation is so very important for us is for the health of the Pacific Ocean and the health of the people who live in this big ocean continent. So uh, if I understand you correctly, what you're saying is for the Pacific Island uh, region, decarbonization has become urgent. And, and, and the target to reduce the temperature of the planet Earth by 1.5 degrees could not come sooner because otherwise not only uh, will the people in the region lose their livelihood? In effect, you will lose the very lands on which you, you live. Now, in a perfect world, Meg, what then is the desired goal of the voices that are advocating for the islanders in terms of the COP's agenda? Well, it's really about the survival of people. Um, within the Pacific, excluding Australia and New Zealand, You've got, um, well, I should say, including Australia and New Zealand, you've got a large population of um, island states. 
population itself is um, small on the smaller atoll states, but countries like Papua New Guinea, uh, close to um, 7 million people now. You've got Indonesia near us, you've got Australia, you've got New Zealand, you've got, then you've got Fiji, Solomon Islands, Vanuatu. I'm just saying these names for people who don't know the Pacific. You've got Samoa, you've got the Cook Islands, you've got Niue, you've got all the Micronesian states, the Polynesian states, the Melanesian states. So altogether, this area encompasses about 40 million square kilometers of economic zones, uh, which is a very, very important for providing uh, food, but it also provides a lot of fish for the European market as well, if we're looking at the economic terms and what it means for the survival of populations also in Europe. Keeping a healthy ocean is so very important. Keeping healthy forests is very important. Um, I think that uh, people who advocate for us and that we who advocate for ourselves is really about the survival of populations, our way of life and the oceans around us. So, um, you know, there, there always is um, the challenge of aligning policies uh, even when there is consensus on the nature of the problem. Now, you, you've listed uh, the Pacific Island uh, member countries, otherwise, yes. uh, you know, comprising the Melanesia, Polynesia, and Micronesia. So these clusters of uh, regional, if you wish, blocks, or sub-blocks, is there alignment politically and in terms of policy on the direction of travel? Amongst the island states, there is absolute alignment. Um, Australia is now under the new government really trying to make efforts to do better in terms of its uh, policies with regard to climate change. But Australia is still a country that uh, produces coal and utilizes coal. That has been a big issue for the island states. The island states have focused very much on temperature rise, also on the use of fossil fuels and urge countries around us who are using fossil fuels to cease using that and to move towards using more renewable energy. But amongst the island countries, particularly the Forum Island countries, which we referred to the smaller island states, um, we're very, very strong on this. But in 19, uh, um, 1919, when we had the, uh, the last, uh, the leaders meeting in Tuvalu, the Kanakai Two Declaration really, with Australia and New Zealand was, was very strong on this where there was the emphasis made there that climate change is the greatest threat, existential threat to the Pacific. And everything that we do should be looking through that lens. And it's about survival of people. Mm. So, so you've got uh, some level at least of consensus that there is a problem. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, in terms of, uh, you know, fossil fuels, production of coal and uh, carbon emissions, 
you, you are recognizing that Australia hasn't uh, entirely come to the party. What are some of the initiatives then on a regional level that uh, the island uh, citizens are, have put in the place to engage Australia and try to encourage both the uh, federal government, the states and uh, companies for that matter to move faster towards decarbonizing Australia's uh, energy mix? Just recently, the um, Pacific Island Forum met in Fiji and the Pacific leaders discussed these matters with the Australian government. So at the highest levels of our leadership, there are discussions always with the prime minister and the relevant ministers in the Australian cabinet. Where we do find that where there is some traction is with the state governments who are making efforts to move their economies towards a greater use of hydro and other renewable energy. Um, I think that it, for us in the Pacific, it's not fast enough. What we're seeing is real changes around our countries and the loss of island states already. We're seeing um, our boundaries starting to decrease. Mm. It's not, whilst we might have Australia and New Zealand, uh, our neighbours that need to do more, you've still got large economies in the world that need to really pull their finger out. And I mean, that's everybody here. You know, it's not just an issue for landlocked countries in Africa or in Asia or the island states, either in the Pacific or in the Caribbean and off the coast of Africa, it's everywhere. And I think it's about everybody getting on the same page that this, this could mean the end of the end of the, you know, the world as we know it, uh, that life will really change with when temperatures get really, really warm. Mm. So uh, you, you quite rightly acknowledge that though we may be looking at the issue from uh, a Pacific regional lens, this is a global uh, problem and, and that there are other players who need to step up to the mark. I'm reminded that right. I'm reminded uh, uh, from your statement that, of course, in your vicinity are two other potential major players in the decarbonization uh, you know, process. And that is both India and China, not a, uh, very far from where you are. Uh, certainly in, uh, you know, uh, environmental terms. It, are these countries that uh, the Pacific Islanders reach out to, to try and engage and try and uh, get more empathy from them for the plight of the citizens of the Pacific who, to your point, are not only at risk of uh, losing their land and their lives, but they are also uh, at risk of losing ocean resources. I believe that the engagement uh, with China and in India is very much through the COP lens uh, when the countries are together, although we have very close relationships with both nations in many of our island states. Uh, I think the geopolitical interest sometimes overrides uh, the, the issue around the climate issues, but uh, looking at renewable technology is one that uh, these two larger economies, particularly China, is interested in working with the Pacific. But in my personal view, that's not, that's not sufficient. Uh, I think that um, 
you know, which China has been upfront about its commitments. Uh, and it's making sure that these, well, the question is, how long, is, how, how long are these larger economies going to take to decarbonize? And in the meantime, uh, there will be Pacific countries that will probably be lost. Mm. Uh, speaking of that, because you, you, you are really acknowledging that there are certain trade-offs. Is the pathway towards transition to clean energy sources consistent with the need, therefore, to protect the economic livelihoods of blue economy resources? And, and if not, what are, in your view, immediate trade-offs uh, arising out of the failure to recognize the agency? Well, Sheila, I'm, I'm not comfortable with the word trade-off. I just think that we've got to do what is right. And what is right is that we know what the impacts of decarbonization are on our reefs. And it's happening, in, it's happening around the country. Um, the reefs in Australia where you've got huge acidification, although there's been slight recovery in the last uh, in the last year. But across the Pacific, as the ocean gets warmer, the sea the fish are starting to migrate from populations in my, Melanesia all the way across to the eastern eastern uh, waters of the of the Pacific Ocean. You will also be losing other stock uh, in the with acidification, it affects the livelihoods of people who rely on uh, seafood to, for their sustenance, etc. So what's going to be the impact on populations? I don't think we can trade anything. We, we didn't cause this. We're not producing coal. We're not emitting huge um, amounts of carbon. If anything, we've provided the largest carbon sink in the world, and that is our ocean and also our forests in countries like Papua New Guinea, Solomon Islands, Fiji. So uh, no more trading, just get it done. It's not muddied for us, it's a matter of survival. The muddied will be in the conscience of people who have not changed their lifestyle. I've been to Europe, I've been to the United States, I go to China, and in many parts of the world, it's as if nothing has changed. In the meantime, you will have populations of people not just in the Pacific, but in parts of your own continent that will also be suffering through this time. What the corporate world needs to do and need is to lead and force their governments to try and look at alternate strategies for economic progress, rather than the, than the, the constant, constant focus on GDP, how important it is for citizens a portion of the world and not the whole world. I'm not being idealistic, I'm being really re realistic here. These conversations that they had at COP, it's just constant reiteration, reiteration, reiteration. And of all the funds that have been committed, what have we seen trickle down into countries? So we're waiting for all that through the different facilities that have now been set up, uh, but it funds for adaptation, fundamental right now, so that people who live on in, in desert, people who live in highlands, people who live uh, on coastal areas can adapt their livelihoods for the time that they have until oceans completely swamp them. Mm. So you, you've put your finger on a, a, a lot of issues. Uh, and, and if yeah. I, I try to uh, sure. encapsulate them, they really speak to what other people call just transition. Uh, and 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 uh, the, the importance of making sure that 
we know where the problem is caused and what causes it, and that th those responsible for the cause of the problem step up to the mark and act responsibly. But you've also uh, spoken to lifestyles. And, and this, I think, for me, Meg, is a real problem because it seems to me that people in the global north want to decarbonize as long as it doesn't materially affect the way they live on a day-to-day. And, and, and I find this a contradiction in terms because we know that the current construct of the world's industrial development systems are at the core of global warming. And yet nobody is really saying, okay, we can't continue to live like this. We need to change on a day-to-day. -day. We need to change how we run our economies. How do we get cops to move quicker in that direction, just to acknowledge that, look, is the way we live and there has to be sacrifices to be made. Let's just go and do it. How do we get uh, COPs to do that? And how do we get the political leaders in the global north to take this conversation home and convince their electorate that everybody, everybody will be affected and everybody must make a sacrifice. It, it cannot just be pushed to the south. Well, it just recently, you see what's been happening in the US, in the House of Representatives, in the Senate. <clears throat> you also see the changes that are emerging in countries like Australia, which is our largest country in, in the Pacific region. I think there is movement. The question will be, will we do all the changes and make the efforts in time? Already, we are seeing salination of islands where people are going to be forced now to move from their islands to find new homes in other places because of the lifestyles that haven't changed. I think there's a there's also a population of people in the in the in the north in the global north that really think that all of this is a hoax. But as climate impact starts to impact the way they live, then perhaps people are going to wake up. But it might be as I said, it might be very late, too late. Europe yeah, has been much stronger, a much stronger partner for the Pacific than the United States or China. Europe has seen what is happening here and they have done a lot in terms of implementing uh, policies and, and through private sector, ensuring that there's a real shift in use of uh, carbon fuels. Hmm. So, now, you, you, you mentioned, of course, the funding uh, and, yep. uh, of this uh, uh, adaptation program. I mean, this is one that I don't understand, that there has been this pledge and, and that, uh, you know, the actual cash and contribution hasn't been made. What, what should an ordinary person like me make, make of this? Is it... Uh, a lack of genuine political will? What is it? How do we explain that th there is this agreement, but materially it's not manifest? I understand that there's been uh, some commitments now through the Green Climate Fund uh, that will hopefully enable countries like yours and mine to be able to access these funds for projects. But I think that there's got to be funding that is much closer to where the impact is within the, within the Pacific region. 
particularly so that we can have funding for adaptation. Um, you know, during COP conferences, people get up and make lots of grand, grand speeches about how they're so concerned about what is going on and they're going to, they're, going, they're there to help. And when everybody leaves and we, and especially our young people in the last COP were very vocal about what they see is that their destiny is unsure. What future do they have or their children have when there is no, no possibility of, of having a sustainable livelihood on where they are? They may not even have a place to live, uh, but it doesn't change. You know, I despair sometimes uh, and one should hope, but I think we're, I personally think that we're running out of time. Hmm. And people, people who feel comfortable and secure where they're living will uh, stay that way. Now, my home is not near the sea. Uh, where, I, where I am now is near the sea, but where I come from is from the highlands of Papua New Guinea, very much like uh, Kenya, uh, Nairobi and places like that and going even, even higher. And the situation there is that climate impact is now affecting us in terms of our agriculture. And I'm sure this is happening in many parts of the African continent where farmers are seeing um, the lack of rain, drought, uh, water shortages. And this has been rich valleys where I come from. People are still producing food, but we're starting to see the intermittent um, or the changes that are starting to affect our communities. If we continue the way we are, this is going to get worse. And it means we're going to have to find new ways of farming and of ways of being able to um, make sure that people are fed so that people can survive. But people who live closest near the sea see the impact very much in terms of the outer islands are now getting inundated by seawater and salination of soil. And you see the acidification and what impact that has on reef life. And if reefs are not healthy, then it's going to affect the creatures that live in the reef and around the reef. Hmm. So you, you, you've uh, spoken about uh, the Green uh, Climate uh, Fund and yes. uh, the, but you also qualified uh, your welcome of this move with the what you called your you favor initiatives that are closer uh, to those that are impacted. Can you explain that? What do you mean by well, you would well, prefer something was... that is more impactful? Yes. Well, when I uh, was at the uh, I left the district island forum secretariat last year, <clears throat> and we had worked for a couple of years on setting up at what we call the Pacific Resilience Facility and. The UN Secretary General was very supportive of it. And when we were preparing for our pledging area at the time, COVID hit us. So none of us have been able to travel from the Pacific for almost two years. And things have moved on since then. And there's a preoccupation about COVID recovery. And of course, the economic recovery because of COVID impact when you live on isolated islands. However, that doesn't mean we should be avoiding setting up organizations that are run by uh, the Pacific Islands 
themselves with funds that are coming in internationally that are invested so that countries can then access funds for adaptation projects and adaptation uh, initiatives within their own communities. Because there is local knowledge in terms of what can stave off um, high seas, uh, what communities may need internally uh, within their own islands so that they, if they have to move to higher ground, what is it that they need when they do move to higher ground? What's going to impact their livelihoods so that they need to protect themselves uh, and their food production? I think that that kind of, these kinds of initiatives should be all over the world, in the Pacific, in, I'm, sure, I'm sure the um, African Development Bank is very active in this area. I have not read up on it. But I'm going to the Asian Development Bank meeting soon, and I hope they're doing something about it. But sometimes multilateral banking institutions see that when countries try to find initiatives, financial initiatives to serve themselves, uh, they're fearful, I think, that they're fearful that we're going to become more independent and don't need them. Well. That's exactly what we should be doing because nobody else is really going to listen to us. If they yeah. had been, we would see far more aggressive initiatives right across the world than we have now. Mm. Going to COP every year to have another conversation just is, for some of us, it's too. I mean, I've had I, some of us like me, I say, is it necessary? nobody's actually listening but other leaders people in the pacific say to me you've got to keep the conversation going because if we don't keep it going we're not going to get any support at all what i just don't understand is how people just treat this all so lightly and just can't seem to fathom that people's lives are affected by what is going on now hmm. yeah it, it is a challenge isn't it meg that on the one hand, you don't want to turn the cops into a talking shop every year, uh, out of which yep. nothing tangible comes. But uh, to your colleague's point also, on the other hand, it is exactly because you have this annual uh, you know, dialogue and noise that people are reminded that there's an issue there. Because in a world in which we are bombarded with information, it's so easy, isn't it, to forget. Uh, but you are also quite right. We can only talk so much. At some point, we ought to back that talk with tangible uh, outcomes. And, and I do think uh, in that respect, I sympathize with those who think uh, there's a little more talking and a little less uh, doing. You, you spoke about yeah. youth. I wanted to just pause and, and say, do you think that the voices of the youth in the climate change and decarbonization space who are resident in the global south is being heard? How, how if they are not being heard, can we help uh, make sure they have a stage? Because this is their future we are talking about. For us in the Pacific, <clears throat> the young people have been very, very active on this. We have um, young people who have who come to COP on behalf of uh, their organizations and on behalf of their countries to speak about what is happening on their island states and particularly on the atolls and what the impact is. We have students at our universities through the Commonwealth Secretariat as well, 
have been very, very vocal. And I hope that through the Commonwealth, through the Commonwealth, um, we have young people from Africa and the Caribbean um, and Asia who also join with the students from Commonwealth countries in the Pacific. But I think that, you know, you've got movements by young people in the North, but still, when you see the when you see the G7 meet and then they come out with their statements, you sort of wonder, is, did anybody pay attention at all to what the future is for the populations that are emerging? It's a, it's a, it's a tough time. And a lot of young people have given up. A lot of young women, uh, particularly in the North, have said we're not having children because what future do they have? Yeah, that's, I think uh, that the youth. I think that I think that Secretary General of the UN has been pretty amazing in the way he always embraces the youth and tries to put their their voices uh, in the forefront. And we, all of us, should be supporting that. Absolutely. So, uh, I think we have climate change, the science and the environmental impact, and then we have the economic. When I think of the mm -hmm. current dialogue and, and, and some of the challenges in really getting momentum, you know, I always come back to geopolitical interest, not so much at national level, but in terms of the, the international uh, or, or global economic and political blocks like the EU, the Americas, you know, uh, China, et cetera. Are the interests of these uh, economic blocks at this point, essentially irreconcilable, or can, can we find a way that we can reconcile these interests such that the pace of things is as quick as uh, the agency of the problem are warrants? Well, that's a complicated question. Uh, and I think the answers are probably very layered. For us in the Pacific, the, the what's happening right now is a real uh, cont contestation for influence in the region between um, China and the United States and her allies. We see um, what's happening because of Taiwan. We also see what is happening because of the suggested uh, uh, possibility at, of a port being built in the Solomon Islands. And this gets everybody's attention. It's amazing. This has had more attention and money than anything to do with climate. <laughs> because politics and power is more important than the survival of the people themselves. So if you're going to do that, you have to, un all of this has to be unpacked. And yes, the US has passed legislation now that uh, on climate and the use of renewable uh, resources uh, within their own jurisdictions, etc. But in many parts of the, the US, the, uh, in, of the world, the US has actually declined in its influence. And China is very much the power that uh, a lot of countries look up to. I have visited Africa 
when I was at vice president, I would go to many of the African countries and one could see just the involvement of their countries with China and with other European powers as well. In the Pacific, it's very strong that uh, China is trying to get a strong foothold into this region uh, and have influence. And it's also to do with the fishing resources because of the abundance of tuna in this part of the world. So your question is complicated. The, my answer is probably more convoluted, but I'd say that you have to, would have to unpack every aspect of what comes first, the climate issue or the geostrategic issue. For mm. Pacific leaders, they would say climate impact comes first because we can't talk to you if we're all underwater. No, I suppose not. So here is my last question uh, uh, to you. And, and, and in, I must also, in the interest of transparency, say that I'm affiliated with a company uh, on a non-executive uh, director basis that is looking for nodules in the deep sea. Mm -hmm. And what we know now is that there isn't enough metallic substances to help the world decarbonize through battery storage, which seems for now to be mm -hmm. the, the solution that uh, will mean we go, we use less natural materials progressively and therefore decarbonize. But to do this, uh, we have first to find the minerals necessary for battery storage. And as fate would have it, some of them lie in the deep sea, but not just in the deep sea, but in the Pacific Island. So once again, to your point of the Pacific Island uh, uh, sequestrating uh, carbon, uh, providing the world with fish, it seems that the South Pacific might also provide the world with uh, uh, metals in the deep sea. I wanted to get your sense of what do you think in the big scheme of things, uh, this is the right uh, direction of travel. Um, there are many people in the Pacific that are very interested in this discussion. Uh, in my own country for a while, there was a company with, uh, also with Russian shareholding and state shareholding that was also exploring uh, doing deep sea, starting to do deep sea mining, or well, they were in the process of getting ready to do it. Uh, the, the nodules that you're referring to uh, are very much in the Polynesian side, from what I understand, in the Cook Islands. That's the country that has been really um, moving on this and trying to get companies to show interest in exploring uh, their oceans. There are, there is proactive, there are proactive governments and there are also very proactive civil society organizations that are speaking against this. And the main reason for speaking against it is because they're concerned about the science and want to know more about what the impact is uh, of deep sea mining. So taking, taking into account what you say, and also um, for transparency's sake, I was approached to be uh, on a board of a, 
a, a company that uh, was interested in deep sea mining in the Pacific. But I declined until I was much, uh, you know, want to know more about what the science is behind all this and what impact it would have on other, uh, on ocean currents and what uh, impact it would have on, uh, on cre uh, ocean creatures, on marine life. So politically, I think that it's very much left to the sovereign state. And whilst you can be a member of a regional organization, uh, when it comes to your economic development, many of the countries will make those decisions uh, on their own. So there's countries like uh, the Cook Islands, there's uh, Nauru, and um, I understand there's exploration licenses now being sought in uh, Kiribati and even in Fiji. Papua New Guinea has gone very quiet at the moment. Sure. Does that answer your question? It does, uh, because you, you, you recognize that uh, we must follow the science, which I think is absolutely uh, the right thing to do. We can't fly blindly and, and, and risk unintended consequences. And I think the, the voices of civil society that is calling for that is, is, is correct. I think at the same time, the voices of the islanders who see this as an economic resource to better the lot of their people is equally right. As with most things, it's just, it's important that the decisions we make are fact-based, they're founded in science, and we mitigate the risk of unintended consequences. Otherwise, we, we find that uh, the next generation is in the same position that we are today. So yes, you've answered me uh, uh, quite well, Meg. And thank you very much. I think that wraps up our conversation for today. Thank you very much for taking time to speak to the Sheila Kama Extracted Podcast. I, I value your insights into the uh, you know, issues as relates to the region of the world in the Pacific uh, Blue Economy regions. Thank you very much, Sheila. And I hope that uh, my contribution here is to make people in other parts of the world, but in particular in the African continent, aware of what we face on an ocean continent as they face on a very large um, earth-based continent. 